Our scripture tonight is 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has, uh, whoever does not believe God has, has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Could anything be less intuitive than the idea of God incarnate saving his people from their sin through a bodily, violent, substitutionary atonement. Even Peter initially found this idea outrageous, and he rebuked Jesus to his face for suggesting such a thing. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And that misguided zeal to defend his Lord. He was even ready to charge into the armed mob that Judas led to betray Jesus. Way too many thugs to ever hope defeating, but Peter was ready to start swinging for heads. Later, when he and the rest of the apostles came around to preaching the blood of the cross as the central message of the faith, it was often received as a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles but the apostles could preach nothing else. Listen to the command Paul gave after calling the Presbytery of Ephesus in order at Miletus. Addressing the elders, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The blood of God himself incarnate in the flesh, shed on behalf of his people, is the heart of the gospel. It is the power of God by which he is both just and the justifier of sinners. And it is the foundation upon which John can speak so much in this book about the confident faith that those who are united to Christ may stand upon through trials and may we love one another basked in. But while It's a glorious truth to us that his blood washes us whiter than snow. Many in John's first century audience were flummoxed by the affront of the cross. And likewise today, there is no shortage of objections raised about the offensiveness 
of this violent substitutionary atonement of which all of Christianity hangs. Some objections are old, fitting with the prominent worldviews and philosophies of that time. Some objections are new, and some are a mix, but all of them confront us as potential obstacles to our faith. And while shaken faith can never pluck us from the love of God or erase one's name from the book of life, it can stunt our spiritual growth by inviting fear, depression, frustration, competitiveness, entitlement, and anger, and all the other anti-virtues that John has used Cain to exemplify for us. In short, when our confidence is shaken, we begin to doubt our standing before God, and then we can naturally be tempted to beat ourselves up in shame or find ways to numb or distract ourselves from looming fear, or we may presumptuously desire to posture ourselves as more righteous than we really are. In the verses leading up to our passage tonight, though, John was just telling us that faith is the wind beneath our wings that allows us to soar above the black hole of doubt and to love one another with a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And now that John has shown us that our faith in Christ is what gives us victory over all the worldly entanglements that doubt invites, he wants to make crystal clear not only who Jesus is that we are trusting, but also precisely what he has done that we are trusting in. John says in verse 6 then, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So we're trusting not only in whatever the water is, but also in the blood. And like Jacob wrestled with God, we have to wrestle with the blood of the cross. Now firstly, what does John mean when he says, who came by the water? One view is that this is the water of the womb that breaks in the birthing process, and so this would be a reference to the incarnation. But the emphasis here is on the witness of the Spirit, and it makes more sense in the context of Christ's baptism where the Spirit descends as a dove and the Father testifies, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It also fits with the fact that John appears to be countering a a proto-Gnostic heresy, that the Son of God was incarnate as the God-man Jesus, or was not incarnate as the God-man Jesus, but rather there was just this pretty righteous human guy Jesus who the divine Spirit of God kind of overtook or gave a temporary endowment of supernatural anointing to, and then with that super spirit sort of departed from Jesus just before the cross. Those holding to this heresy then could agree with John that Jesus Christ had come by the water, but they would not agree that he was there for the blood of the cross. John is saying, no, Jesus Christ came by the water and the blood. John then goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now this comes along with a famous tag-along variant reading known as the comma Johannim. The King James Version, for example, includes the comma, but it's evident that it's not part of the original canon. 
It reads, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three, and these three agree in one. Now, this variant first uh, popped up in the 15th century, and then Erasmus's new uh, Greek New Testament came out in the early 16th, and some people were upset because he left this verse out. Erasmus defended this omission, though, by explaining that those words just do not show up in any Greek manuscript that I have ever seen. He promised to include it in a later edition of the Greek manuscript if it were found, though. And what do you know? A Greek manuscript just happened to pop up a few years later with the disputed text included. Erasmus, true to his word, he added the comma to the third edition of the 1522, but he and the majority of scholars believe that a Franciscan friar at Oxford likely created that document in a very timely appearing out of a desire to defend the Trinity. Because if the comma Johannine was originally part of verses 7 through 8, it would be the clearest and most direct reference to the Trinity in the Bible. And there is a temptation then there for those who hold to the Trinity to want to keep the variant. But the words we have here, omitting the comma, are clearly the original. And though the temptation to keep the comma is born out of a good orthodox adherence to the doctrine of the Trinity— And though lots of people have memorized it in Sunday school, those are not good enough reasons to keep it in Scripture. Plus, it's not like the doctrine of the Trinity stands or falls on these verses. It's also conveyed abundantly throughout the rest of Scripture. So we don't need to hold on to these questionable variants like this to make the case for the Trinity. What John is saying here, then, is that the witness of the Spirit in Christ's baptism is not disjointed from the work of Christ on the cross, as the false teachers were saying. So verse 9 through 10. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, uh, believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. That phrase, made him a liar, should catch our attention. John used it once before in chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the person who does that has this dishonest, internal, general revelation testimony that cannot properly function as a, as a proper foundation for the Spirit's external, special revelation testimony about the water and the blood. See, through the centuries, the cross has generally been under four lines of attack. The first is that physical matter is somehow intrinsically evil or corrupt. So the very idea of an incarnation, that the perfect holy, spiritual God would take unto himself a truly human nature as just a contradiction in terms. It's not really a very prevalent view today, but it runs along the lines of what false teachers uh, that John is dealing with. And Muslims, though, do hold to something along these lines. 
they don't believe that the material world is intrinsically evil because they don't believe that anything is intrinsically evil. Man is certainly not depraved by his descendancy from Adam. But they do believe that God is so transcendent that he could never do something like make himself eminent to mankind in a way that is taking on human nature. That is a contradiction in terms for them. A second view that attacks this, the violent substitutionary atonement is also not super highly uh, seen a lot today, except in, orth- in an Orthodox Jewish perspective. This is the perception that the coming Messiah would be more grandiose and kingly and victorious in a less theological and more explicit and common understanding of victory. The third view is what the overall objections of humanists or other religions mostly fall into today. People just don't think of themselves as bad sinners. Islam, then, is sort of a mix of both views one and three. And this can, of course, still influence those who are truly within the fold of God. We all experience levels of epiphany in the Christian life of just how deep the rabbit hole of our depravity really goes. We can assent to the truth of our depravity as if it's sort of a binary belief. I believe I am good or I believe I am a sinner. And if that's all we see, that is fine or good if we're saying we're a sinner. And the miracle of godly convictions by the Spirit is happening within us. But then one day, I hurt my child's feelings. I say things in an argument with my spouse that crossed the line. I feel the weight of some important responsibility that I've neglected for years and the consequences have begun to materialize. And I realize I am really, really not the good guy in this story. I am not the hero. Like Johnny Cash says, you're looking for someone to pick you up each time you fall, someone to die for you and more, but it ain't me. The fourth view is what many liberal churches fall into. There's usually a sliding scale here on how much sin is taken seriously within myself, but mankind is usually not sinful by nature in this view. When when there is sin, it's usually not what we would traditionally think of as sin. The worst evil for many liberal churches is someone else, else out there who is smothering my truth with some kind of objective truth construct. My testimony is more important than any testimony outside of myself. But this is really tragic and ironic because for all the struggling done for the right to have my personal truth experience heard and believed and celebrated, if that personal testimony is not that I am a sinner, it's a lie. My truth says everything I feel and do is good and needs to be celebrated, but That's not true. I'm not even living according to my own truth. My truth is not real, much less according to the truths that originate outside of me. And my walking in darkness is as dangerous to myself as it is in others because that darkness cannot perceive the light of the cross. It can't make sense of it. It's not a solution to a problem that I am willing to admit that I have. Indeed, the cross is now rarely seen as needing to have any objective lesson behind it at all in most liberal churches, much less to have truly accomplished anything. What matters now is how the cross may be reimagined 
and brought up to speed with modern sensibilities so that it can speak into my unique experience in a pragmatic and therapeutic way. The sad truth is that Christians or those who are struggling with their sin but may be ready to call it sin and repent, unbelievers who call themselves Christians and apostate churches that call themselves Christians, there will be greater opposition to you than those who admit that they are not believers at all. In that way, liberal churches are, are like the false teachers that John is warning the church about here. And unfortunately, what happens when sinners walk into these churches, the sinner who may be open to trusting in the blood of Christ and repentance are not met with the good news of the cross. The sinner is instead encouraged with some utopian vision of how beautiful you are or how beautiful the world could be if you learn the Christ-like principles, which just so happen to coincide with whatever particular message or social justice uh, that that our so-called church wants to protest. Where the sinner may have begun feeling conviction about their sin, and so they looked up a local church on Google, and they found this one, and they were met with lies, softening the conviction of sin. You aren't so bad. But you know who really is bad are all the people out there that make you do bad things. What you need to do is love yourself and take up our cause of our Christ. A hundred years ago, this year, J. Gresham Machen wrote how, wrote about how any so-called church that falters or compromises on sin and the cross is no church at all. The church that that church preaches an altogether different religion. There is Christianity founded on the blood of Christ shed for sinners, and then there is liberalism, which seeks to soften the blow to our pride that comes at the cross. Often liberalism is fueled by a, a misguided sense of compassion, a good intention to appreciate and respect all people, because we are all made in the image of God, Somehow, that perversely morphs, though, into an odd need to ensure that all views and feelings have an equal voice at the table of truth. And this elevation of self-esteem over truth becomes an idol in the place of the one truth that the Holy Spirit testifies through the scriptures. Now, One particular liberal view, though, which is worth taking a moment to address, is the idea that for those who have been legitimately traumatized or abused and who also have little to no experience with the Bible may misperceive the cross as telling you to be a subservient victim. And we can take that perception seriously and treat it compassionately without invalidating anyone's experienced traumatic injustices But that having been said, it is simply a non-sequitur to elevate personal experiences and emotional impressions or trauma responses to the highest hermeneutic authority of biblical interpretation. That doesn't make any sense. Indeed, as noted before, even Peter, who the scriptures make no mention of having suffered past trauma, had a visceral and repulsed reaction to the idea of the cross. It is a serious image and is meant to prompt solemn contemplation. That contemplation, though, is meant to happen thoughtfully and carefully over the course of a lifetime 
as all its scriptural background and theological implications are preached and meditated on Sunday by Sunday. Nothing could be less fitting for the God of the written word to have the pinnacle of his redemptive plan balked at because a first impression of the subject matter may evoke an adverse response in some. And while Peter himself surely had loyal and compassionate and empathetic and loving motivation mixed with his misunderstandings and thankfulness and, and thick-headedness when he told Jesus that he would never want to see him crucified, Jesus still drew the line on the sand and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And later, Jesus would even add a new level of, to the bewilderment of this bloody situ- solution to our sin. And in sacramental language, he would explain, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Some who were following him were so flabbergasted and puzzled by this that they grumbled, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And for some, that was the final straw in their cue to peace out from following Jesus. Scripture is absolutely clear about the consequences of rejection of the Son and the cross, though. Because even if the cross is offensive or difficult, the fact still remains, where else are we going to go to have our sins dealt with? Rejecting Jesus does not somehow create a new path to forgiveness. This is why For Peter, when things got so difficult and Jesus asked him if he would leave like the others, Peter replied, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. There's there's nothing else. Nobody's in the sin cleansing business like you. And John echoes this in verse 11, 12. Excuse me, saying, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. The one who has the Son has this life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have this life. Perhaps only John 3.36 is a clearer statement regarding the exclusive claims of Christ as the only way to salvation for sinners. There it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what do we believe? We believe that Jesus came by the water and the blood. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. That is, he suffered a substitutionary penal death in our place. And we believe this because God has testified of himself in ourselves and through the Spirit. This isn't fuzzy. John couldn't be any clearer. Everything internally important depends on this truth Everything else pales in comparison. I was recently watching this YouTube video on 10 skills that everyone should work on to improve your life. And they weren't wrong. They were all practical and wise. Exercise regularly. Learn to manage your finances well. Learn to listen well and communicate clearly and on and on. Do these things and your life will be better. They probably won't hurt, but they are superfluous without Christ. It's why the Rodin's famous statue, The Thinker, or The Thinking Man, which took its inspiration from Dante's Divine Comedy, is so sober in its thoughtfulness 
as it originally stood in a museum amidst a showcase of the gates of hell, he models the appropriate thought about sin and its implications. So whether we are struggling in this world or perhaps successful in all those practical areas that can make life run more smoothly and wisely, if you know Christ, you may rejoice. Because those who are offended by the blood of the cross who do not have Christ to deal with their sin, they will deal with their sin before God all by themselves. And so we rejoice that while we have sinned, God has paid the price. And so may we also, without apology, never cease to trust in the blood of Christ shed in our place, to trust that our sins were imputed to him and that the wrath that we deserve was poured out on him and our sins that he was clothed in, to trust that he drank the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs so that not one drop remains for us, to trust that he then raised from the dead because death could not hold the perfect, righteous God-man, who life itself is an aspect of his very nature, and to trust that in the place of our sin, imputed to him, he imputes to us his righteousness. This is surprising, troubling, wonderful, counterintuitive, challenging, and glorious. And yet, it is the non-negotiable tenet of our faith that we praise God for. Amen.